one who waits. You're looking well, Ed. Thank you. I see you found a new vocation. Vocation? Oh, yeah. Well, this is just until my directing career takes off. Well, it's always good to have something to fall back on. Can I offer you a musketeer's bar? No, thanks, Ed. I'm a ghost, remember? We don't eat. Oh, right. Sorry. No need to feel so. I must admit, I like to take a whiff of food every once in a while for old time's sake. You know how it is. What brings you here? Well, remember the last time I was here in Sicily and how bad you felt when we couldn't find your parents? Uh-huh. Well, I felt bad, too. So I kept on looking. I looked everywhere. This world, the next. Anyway, the bad news is I went through five pair of moccasins. The good news is I found your father. Mm-hmm. One Who Waits is back, and this opening gambit teases an Ed-centric episode. Super excited to be diving in with Ed Chigliak. Always love it when he's like mainly featured in an episode, but there's a lot going on here. Uh, I did want to mention from just this opening soundbite, it sets up perfectly. Like it's a good exposition because it's like, yes, Ed, I'm a filmmaker. Uh, One Who Waits, you're a ghost. Also, it's important to remember that one who waits likes smelling things because that comes up a little later in the episode. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There is a lot of exposition-heavy dialogue right there, which they need to because if you have not been watching from the very beginning... Yeah, like season two. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they need to describe it really quickly just off the bat. Just get some footing right here so the new audience can understand and then we can just move forward. Yeah, and the last time we saw One Who Waits was on this journey with Ed, trying to find Ed's biological father. Ed is an orphan. Uh, in that last episode that One Who Waits was in... One who waits isn't really that big of a help, uh, but it's kind of fun. He's lovable. You love to have him around. We love one who waits. But um, no, the end of that episode had Ed meeting what we are to assume is Ed's biological father. Uh, you know, they don't really say, hey, my name is Ed. Hey, my name is Ed's dad. Nice to meet you. <laughs> but but we get the My gist. name is Ed's dad. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> but we understand that, you know, and, you know, we'll talk about this as it goes on, but just from the ending of this opening soundbite, this seems to contradict what we've already seen. But it turns out that, no, that was all, like, we're retconning this. It's kind of a convenient retcon. Well, we're okay, we're getting ahead of ourselves because that's, like, the next scene that we'll talk about. But, Charles, before we get into there, what are we talking about? All right, ladies, so what we're talking about is Northern Exposure. It aired on CBS in 1990s. We're on season four. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. That's right. My name is Lee, and you're right. This is season four, episode 13. It's called Duets, directed by Wynn Phelps and written by Jeffrey Nair, who has written once before for this show. He wrote the episode Midnight Sun earlier in this season, but uh, doesn't seem to have any more writing credits afterwards. Oh, okay. Oh, original air date. January 18th, 1993, uh, which makes sense. It's seven days after <laughs> the last episode aired. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so we, before we did this little, we had to come in and kind of set up the podcast. We were about to jump into the next scene with Ed because this is kind of continuing what happened in Ruthann's store, the soundbite that we played with One Who Waits. Now they're continuing this conversation in The Brick and we get to relive some of the old tropes that we saw in the first episode with One Who Waits. Just real fast, that episode was called The Big Kiss, season two. But the same thing happens in that episode that happens in this episode. They sit down at the bar. Ed starts talking to One Who Waits. 
and it's a ghost, so no one can see one who waits. Though I think in a, in the big kiss in his first appearance, I think maybe Marilyn could see him, or it's kind of implied that natives can see him. Do you remember this? Yeah, I remember that. I think that it was just Marilyn that might have been able to see him, which is good because if nobody could see him, we couldn't definitely say he was a ghost. Like it could be uh, an illusion, like a mental illness within him. But yeah. this one was like more supernatural, which is better. <laughs> yeah, like if if only Ed could see One Who Waits, then Joel Fleischman, who repeats the same thing in this episode, you know, he's very concerned in both episodes that Ed has some sort of mental delusion, uh, some sort of mental problem. Uh, what does he say in this episode? He relates, you know, talking to uh, no one, like an imaginary friend, talking to an imaginary friend as um, a manifestation of psychotic behavior. Uh, that's Joel's little, you know, bit on one who waits in this scene. And Shelly, again, you know, she fondly remembers the ghost one who waits, you know, she's, she doesn't, she doesn't know exactly where he is. Like Ed has to say, oh, you know, he's a little bit to the left, a little bit to the left right there. Um, but they get the same order, hamburgers, but this time with no pickles because, uh, well, you remember from the opening soundbite, one who waits can't eat, but he loves to smell the food for some reason. Yeah. Is that what pickles are? Uh, gherkins? Gherkins. Yeah. That's a, that's a very specific, uh, term for a pickle. I wonder how it differs from just like pickle. Let me, let's figure this out. Gherkin versus pickle. The final showdown. <laughs> okay. So gherkins are pickles, but not all pickles are gherkins. Wait, is that true? Cause I'm looking at this Wikipedia page and it just says that like an alternative name for a pickled cucumber is a gherkin. I guess you could. Yeah. In this case, that's just the slang that they're using in the diner gherkin for pickle. But according to the top of my Google search, a pickled gherkin is crispier than a pickled cucumber. I think it's in fact smaller and crunchier. It might be a marketing thing, right? Like they're probably the same. Just gherkins are like the smaller ones and maybe they're treated in a certain way to be crunchier, less uh, less soft. Yeah, it does say here that they're <laughs> typically one to five inches in length. So that's smaller than a regular pickle. I know it's not like a, you know, there's like a cornichon. That's a thing. Uh, then there's like the sweet, you know, sweet pickles. There's so been, so much variety there. Wait, there's a koi pickle? Have you We're, from the south? Wait, what? We're from the south. I've <laughs> never heard of this. South. What is this? How do you spell it? Koi pickles. Or oh, Kool-Aid pickle. Yeah. Kool-Aid so that's a thing that I learned about, I want to say in college, but it definitely is real unless there's like the whole like mandala effect. Berenstein bears are real, you know, <laughs> because I've, I've met people from Louisiana who have had Kool-Aid pickles. That's a thing. But I want to say it's probably more of like a Mississippi or like an Alabama. Like I don't, you know, I guess Charles, you can agree. Like I've never, I've never eaten a Kool-Aid pickle. I mean, I wouldn't put it past me to not know that. I, I have a memory when I was in high school where uh, I think I was a freshman in high school. And we were in world geography learning about the crops that we grow in certain regions of the United States. <laughs> and one of them for the southern United States was okra. And I, I raised my hand like an idiot and was like, Ms. Smith, what's okra? And like, I, I just didn't know. Like, I had no idea. I mean, I yeah, got through well, 13 years of life without knowing. To be honest, like, I, I didn't really eat a lot of okra when I was growing up, you know, so I probably eat a lot more now, but yeah. <laughs> um, okay, hey, let's get back. Let's see. So, yeah, what I was trying to say about this sort of retcon that happens in this episode, 
the idea that, you know, we already saw Ed, you know, quote unquote, meet his father. That's what we were to understand was to happen. But um, they quickly kind of write it off. Apparently, one who waits talks to a respected elder of the tribe. He names Donald Napakiak, someone who passed away shortly after um, one who waits first met Ed and tried to help him find his father. This respected elder passed away, and I guess in the spirit world, could tell one who waits, uh, look, you know, this is Ed's father. Like, I, I know the truth. So why Donald Napakiak never told Ed? Who knows? Maybe they grew apart. Maybe they don't even live in Sicily. This is just sort of the quick rewrite that they do very early in the episode to explain uh, this journey that we're about to go on. Well, before we get to Ed, let's table that for last. Let's okay. talk about Mike and Maggie. Eminem. Cool. Yeah, Eminem. <laughs> So Mike and Maggie in this episode, I want to say the first scene we see them is inside of uh, Mike's geodesic home. And he's been like studying charts. You know, you got, you got the like satellite printouts, you got rulers, different sort of, I, I don't even all these measuring devices. And he tells Maggie that he's been tracking this abandoned Soviet research station that's sort of like on this iceberg that now has detached from like the chunk iceberg and is now floating wildly, uh, randomly, like they don't know where it might go. And the problem here is that this abandoned Soviet research station, apparently there's a lot of like drums of maybe chemicals. It's hard to say like what was on that iceberg. Now it seems to be like at a certain point, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get closer and closer to Sicily. Right. And Mike is afraid that the closer he gets to Sicily, the more that he's going to react to it. So he needs to plan preemptively to know what it is so that he can prepare himself and also alert the administrative bodies of what's happening. In this case, the EPA. Yeah, I was just, I didn't, I don't know why I didn't think about this while I was watching it, but his solution isn't to like, you know, like, What's that? Uh, what's that movie where they like blow up? They sh they shoot a rocket at an asteroid or something? Apollo. Well, that's a real thing, actually. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> so uh, it, Armageddon. Armageddon. It, yeah, I think that's. Is that it. the one where yeah, they like yeah. send the astronauts? No, they, they, I'm sorry, they don't send astronauts. They send the. <laughs> they send farmers or something. I can't remember what yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. They, they. Okay, so there's like a story. <laughs> That they had, uh, I'm trying to remember who's in Apocalypse. I mean, uh, Armageddon. <laughs> it's like Bruce Willis. It's um, Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck. That's <laughs> yeah. the person. Yeah. And I, I think Ben Affleck was talking to the director Michael of Bay. Armageddon. Yeah. Michael Bay. And he was saying like, wait, why are we sending like these farmers into space uh, to be astronauts? Wouldn't it be easier to send astronauts into space and let them do what like the farmers are going to do? Because yeah, teach... you had to compare the two jobs. <laughs> yeah. Like. The astronauts much harder. Teach I think the Michael astronauts. Like, <laughs> sorry, I was gonna say, teach the astronauts how to do farm stuff rather than teach farmers like astrophysics and <laughs> rocket science. Sorry, I cut you off. What, what was Michael? No, no, Bay, no, it's all right. What was Michael Bay's hey, response? I, I I think it was just like, shut up, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, you're an actor. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, so, what, where were you? What, uh, what were you okay. going to say about this? What was I going to say? Yeah, I I don't know why I didn't think about this, but. Mike's solution isn't to like stop the barrels of dangerous chemicals. I guess what can he do? He's just a normal guy. But it just feels weird that it's like his solution is like, it's going to hit me. There's nothing I can do about it. So I get, I guess I get it. Like he can prepare, like you said, he can prepare for whatever's coming. But for me, I think what was really driving his action is like, 
he wants to like make this a news story. Like he wants to like have a big scoop. What's the word? Like a blow up yeah, news yeah. article. So yeah, I just thought it was funny. Uh, but I uh, know there is kind of a cool, almost action movie-esque bit of uh, dialogue. I think in this scene, uh, I think it's Mike. I have it written in quotes. We're going to find out what's in those drums. Do you remember that moment? It seemed like pretty I, powerful I, I don't, but that sounds like, down. that sounds like a Mike thing to say. Yeah. It seemed like very um, call to action. So getting excited. Uh, his plan is to go to the Illivit Mountains. And actually, Joel kind of makes fun of this later. But Mike's plan is like, get up really high where there's clear air. And in that place, he can detect better maybe. Or he can like smell or see if he's getting skin rashes. But then Joel later when he's with Maggie sort of makes fun of that idea. Of course, we know just from show Bible that Mike has like super sonic or just like super powerful smelling. It wouldn't be supersonic. I don't know what you would call that. Uh, super olfactory nerves. But uh, Joel points out that barrel drums of chemicals are like 500 miles away. You would need an olfactory nerve the size of Yankee Stadium, I think he says, in order to detect anything. But, uh, I mean, it's TV and and uh, Mike is really good at smelling stuff, I guess. Yeah, so the next scene, we actually see Mike in action using that. He is presumably at the mountains. It's actually not made clear in my opinion, because uh, there's no scene of them traveling in the plane or even talking about the trip. <laughs> yeah, they just arrive in like a field, just, right? Yeah, <laughs> which I would thought was kind of confusing. But when they arrive at the field, they find like what appears to be like a porta potty or something. I thought it was like a. I thought it was like an old refrigerator, just like some junk thrown about. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Now that I'm looking at it again, it's uh, you definitely can't use the bathroom in that. Uh, that's. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could, but that would be even meaner to the yeah. environment, perhaps. Yeah, that actually angers Mike, and he tries to parallel it to Searcy Island, saying that it was a place that whenever scientists had found it, it was filled with garbage. But when I Googled that, I actually couldn't find any trace of that. Searcy Island was formed in 1963 after a volcanic eruption. So when a volcano explodes, it creates landmass through the magma that's hitting the water. And this is like a little bit off like Iceland around that area. And when that happened, they all agreed universally amongst the scientific community that they should leave this place alone so that they can observe what it's like with a newly established island. So... There wasn't, from what I can tell, I, I couldn't read up on anything about there being human debris on the island mm. or like that anybody had lived there. Right now, there's no tourists that can go there. Only a few scientists are allowed foot. And yeah, it's pretty much one of the most forbidden places to go to. <laughs> it's a popular destination for migratory birds and Baskin seals to. Huh. Yeah, I've definitely heard of that idea of, you know, going to unspoiled land, you know, just out in nature. And then you see exactly what happens. Like he sees a refrigerator or what he's describing is like all this plastics washing up on shore. It's weird that the show kind of got, maybe they got it confused because it sounds like what you described is kind of the opposite. It's like a perfectly preserved, untouched by man and scientists like tried as hard as they could to prevent any sort of outside pollution. Yeah, I don't know. That's weird. Uh, I guess they're maybe just... Uh, some sort of like misconnect there, but not saying that doesn't exist. And obviously, at least in the fiction of this show, it certainly exists when they get to the top of, I'm guessing, yeah, it's kind of hard to determine where they are. I'm guessing they're at the top of the 
Illuvit Mountains uh, because Mike can start smelling, he can start feeling things, uh, like feeling his uh, skin uh, ha- hiving is what he calls it, I guess getting hives. And uh, he, he starts to tie off his arm, but it's for uh, epinephrine. Um, I guess you have yeah, to that... find the vein. I, I never thought about, when you see that, you think about heroin or drugs, right? But this is like, yeah. he's, a, he's like um, an immuno junkie. You know, he's like, needs like his epinephrine. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. No, I definitely thought like he was shooting up right then and there. <laughs> like you, you, your brain can't help but think that whenever you start getting out the noodle and you start like tying it to your hand, like. <laughs> okay. Um, so this continues uh, when Mike is back at home and Maggie comes to visit him, basically saying like, look, uh, you know, I thought you would show up at the brick. I haven't seen you in a while since we got back. Mike insists. He's like, no, look, I've got so much to work on. He's got the satellite printouts. I want to say like it looks like things are looking good, right? Like it's shifting. I actually wasn't paying too much attention. I was paying more attention to the visual of the scene because uh, Mike invites Maggie closer to look at the map or the printout. And they're obviously standing really close together. And as they're talking, the camera is like zooming in or pushing in closer to the two of them, drawing them even closer and... Uh, yeah, here it comes. They they share a kiss. That's actually really interesting because I was also not really paying attention to what they were saying. <laughs> yeah. I was paying attention to the visuals as well, but not the camera visual. I ah. was paying attention to the flowers at the back behind them. So it could be a number of flowers from what I'm able to tell. I don't have this show in HD and it's not <laughs> even a close shot of the flowers, but I'm guessing that they're pink anemones mm. uh, right there in the forefront. And the ones in the back... I think that might be Cattleya orchids, but I cannot tell. And I'm not too sure what the yellow flowers are. There's just way too many for me to be able to identify that. But what's neat about this scene with the flowers is that going off of the pink anemones, we initially see them in the background whenever they kiss. But then Maggie kind of pulls away from Mike. And you can see the angles between the two where Maggie is on the left side and Mike is on the right side. And where Mike is positioned, there is the pink anemones in the background with him. Pink anemones usually symbolize forsaken or dying love. So it's kind of mirroring what Mike is feeling, that he feels that the love that he has with Maggie is temporary. It's not going to last. Now, I don't know if this is all intentional or if they actually could read flower language or if those are just <laughs> really lovely flowers to have. But we are Northern Overexposure Podcast. We are overanalyzing it. So that is... What I'm going to go with. No, I definitely do think there is flower language is a real thing, obviously. Uh, You know, florists, people will say, you know, you buy a red rose for this reason, a pink rose for this reason. Obviously, I don't know what the reason is, but there is a, you know, there is some sort of flower language there. So, you know, whether or not what you described this uh, anemone, pink anemone, Mm -hmm. uh, the meaning, whether that is widely known or not. I'd like to believe that the production designer maybe chose these flowers or the greenery person, you know, chose these specific flowers because of their meaning for this scene. So I will say this is kind of like a dreaded moment for me in this season. I, you know, I told you before, Charles, I was not a big fan of Mike in, you know, my fandom of Northern Exposure, though. I've learned to appreciate him a little more with this podcast, you know, as we rewatch each episode. And I got to say, it was interesting. Uh, Joel doesn't get a whole lot to do in this episode. And oftentimes, if Maggie and Joel are in an episode, 
and Mike is also in the episode, it's kind of hard to like split the difference there. There's always that, there's usually a romance subplot, but maybe I'm wrong. I should go back and uh, kind of reanalyze that. But I will say Joel doesn't get a whole lot to do in this episode, but the deleted scenes, which I don't know if you've seen Charles, but I'll just briefly say there is sort of more of a squabble between Maggie and Joel in this episode in the deleted scene. Like Maggie is over at Joel's house fixing his shower head uh, to make it more economical, like more economic, uh, eco-friendly, I should say, Uh, saves more water. And this must be after, you know, Maggie and Mike went out to Mount Illivet. So Joel is able to kind of like spar with her a little bit about this. And uh, Maggie's able to play with him and say, oh, you're jealous, you know? So we see a little bit more of that flirtation. Though I would assume this deleted scene would come before what we're talking about now, the kiss. And uh, that's not the end of this plot line with Mike and Maggie they have some more stuff to work through through this episode. Yeah, that scene continues with Maggie pulling away and, and telling Mike that it's in her nature to kill men. She, that's just what she does. Yeah, she says, I can't do this. Mike says, you know, is it Joel? She says, of course not. She says, I'm I'm toxic sludge. I'm global warming. Like the greenhouse effect all rolled into one because as you said, Charles, she has a history. Actually, it's really funny. <laughs> She has a history of killing men. Uh, Mike is apparently aware of this, though he wasn't aware of how deadly she exactly was. Like he he knew of Rick and uh, the one that, you know, died on the glacier. But it turns out she's killed five men or rather I should say five of her boyfriends have died uh, while she was, well, you know, while she was involved with them. But anyway, I've got this soundbite. This is sort of like Maggie's conundrum or Maggie's dilemma here, how she views... Um, A curse, maybe? Well, let's see what she says. Maybe there is a scientific, rational explanation. You know, maybe I affect men's molecular levels. Maybe I disturb their negative ions. Maggie. Science is based on an observable phenomena. You throw a ball into the air. If it comes back down to Earth every time, you have gravity. Well, I'm five for five. I'm a scientific phenomenon. Yeah, that soundbite comes from the next scene where Mike is going to Maggie's house to try to explain the situation. Uh, Before we get there, though, I... I wanted to talk about the scene beforehand where Maggie was comparing herself to greenhouse gas. She was comparing herself to yeah. like pollution or like things that Mike is afraid of. Like the reason he even goes to the Illinois Mountains is to find all these disasters, these man-made disasters. And I, I like that Maggie chooses that to describe herself. Right. Because in this, is it because, are you saying because in this scene, Mike is the one who basically has to say, look, that stuff doesn't scare me. And kind of like what I was saying, you know, it's like at first he thought it was two people, uh, two boyfriends that died. It turns out it was five. Even still, he's not afraid. And he goes on to say, I like that he says, you know, there's not a man on the planet who lives more safely than I do. Nothing bad can happen to me. Right. And it goes with the theme of the episode, or at least one of the themes of the episode, uh, of duets. Oh, yeah. Which is imagining of two people. So Maggie is... In her nature, to what she believes, is that she kills men. And the nature of Mike is self-preservation. But together, they can create something much more than the sum of their parts. So that's what's making it into a very interesting relationship between the two. Because fundamentally, they seem from opposite poles. Yeah, and like if we're taking that deleted scene that I mentioned before, we could see, you know, we see this a lot in episodes with uh, Mike and Maggie romance where... 
Maggie is inspired to be like more health conscious, more eco-friendly. And yeah, it's, you know, it's like an opposites attract thing. Maybe the duets element that you're talking about. It's a cute little exchange here in this scene, the way it ends. Maggie says, when I first met you, I thought you were the bravest man in the world. Now I think you're braver than the bravest man in the world. I actually forget. So is this the last, like what, what, what turns out with them? They decide, I guess they decide they're going to keep trying. Well, there's like that one last scene at the bar where Marilyn and is it Arlen? Yeah. Yeah. Marilyn and Arlen are playing the piano and it's a nice shot of Mike in the middle. And then Maggie approaches from left of the screen. So she sits on the left side and then Joel is in the right slash background. And He's not really looking at them, but because of the way it's shot, you can get left, middle, right, and it's going from upper, middle, bottom, and Joel is on the bottom, just looking at there. So you're kind of seeing the love triangle right there. Definitely. Yeah, I liked that. I liked seeing that. I know the shot you're talking about with kind of Joel kind of back there. But yeah, I think it's nice. You know, it does. there's no contention. There's no like oddness, weirdness in this moment, at least, um, which is like, we'll get to it, but that's like kind of like a beautiful little moment as the town gathers and listens to uh, some beautiful piano music. But, so that's kind of like the termination of Mike and Maggie. They end up at the brick by the end of the episode. Should we wheel back for this Arlen character that we were just talking about, this new new uh, new addition for this episode? Yeah, let's talk about Arlen. So Arlen is a blind piano tuner who, from what I can gather... He just travels to different locations to tune <laughs> pianos. Yeah, this guy just like shows up and uh, he's very bossy. And it doesn't even seem that like Hauling wants the piano tuned, but uh, I guess it's just a thing that has to happen. Maybe this has happened before in the past. I guess Hauling has owned the brick for quite a long time. Yeah, sorry. Were, were you, what were you going to say? Uh, no, no, no. I was just saying that he immediately we can tell that he's very gruff. He's rough around the edges. He has lines that are like purposely made yeah. so that the audience will dislike him. Yeah, he talks about eating a dog like Holling mentions. Yeah, I used to know a guy who was blind. I think he says um, unsighted is what he calls it. Uh, an unsighted friend who had a seeing eye dog. And uh, this Arlen character says, yeah, I mean, I had a dog once, but times got rough and I ate the dog. Yeah, that's like, a, obviously, this is a horrible, creepy, weird, old, blind, I don't know, crazy guy. Right, so clearly he is just really out there, but he's blind. So <laughs> Holling has to pull back his punches, literally, and we as audience members are also kind of in the same boat where we feel like, I want to say something back, but you're blind. So I'm gonna... Yeah, you know, I didn't I didn't really get that until there is a scene when um Arlen basically is telling Holling, like, look, punch me, huh? You want to punch a blind guy? Like he's like egging him on to do this. So I didn't really get it until that scene because I don't know, at least for me, I think it is I think that is what they're that's obviously what they're trying to do, is they're trying to uh make you kind of feel like, you know, this guy's blind, he may be mean, but look at him, he's blind, like give him a break. But for me, watching the episode, I was like, no, this guy's this is a terrible character. Maybe it's because I've seen it before, but I'm like, <laughs> no, like, why is Hauling listening to this guy? But I also like music and I like piano. And I guess Hauling does too, which is what we find out. Maybe that's also part of why he's giving this guy a pass because 
Maybe he truly does believe this piano can sing. I, I never thought about it like that either. Mm. You know, that reminds me of something that happened in uh, the novel The Fault in Our Stars where the two main characters have a debilitating disease, they have cancer, and they go to visit this particular person that they really want to visit, and they idolize him, and it turns out that he's a gigantic asshole, and he doesn't care that they have cancer. He still calls them out, and... The, one of the main characters is incredibly mad at him, but also feels like a strange thing in her body where she's like, you know, this is the first time that someone's ever like called me out, even though she didn't deserve to be called out. She felt like there was at least some honesty to this man where like he just didn't care what they were going through. Like he, he was just going to call him out for what he perceived to be the right thing. Yeah, that's kind of what I was feeling. Like I was surprised that Holling is getting stepped all over by this man. And um, I mean, I don't know. It's like this guy, I mean, Holling, Holling's pretty gruff and all, but but Arlen is, uh, he's definitely in control of the situation. So it's not impossible for me to believe that he's just kind of like steamrolling into this place, barking out the orders. And again, like I just said, now that I'm just thinking about it now, maybe Holling does have some sort of um, affinity for this piano and he, he truly does want to see it rebuilt in a way. Maybe it's a subconscious thing too, because I think... Uh, I think it all comes pouring out later um, when he hears the piano played. But well, we're still here early in this episode where Arlen comes in. He says he's going to tune the piano for $150. And as we also see, he's very perceptive for a blind band. Like he can tell that without even like feeling the strings, just playing, he can tell that the uh, piano has copper wound strings. It's got nickel plated tuning pins. He can smell uh, the spoiled fish cakes that Shelly brings by on the plate. And he can somehow tell that Shelly is blind and that that she's a stacked blonde, even though he can't see her with his eyes. Yeah, there was a lot of sexist comments on here, but we've we've talked about this before. Like, we we don't (laughs) we don't have to get into it. It's a relic of its time. Like, obviously, we know that it's wrong. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we yeah. Can just leave and I mean, this is a detestable character regardless. Uh, so Right, so it kind of just plays into it. So in the next scene, it's not just $150 anymore, it's $250. Uh, the reason being that they tacked on tax onto the piano, giving it a honky-tonk sound. But you know what's really curious about this is that that's actually the thing you look for when you try to identify an out-of-tune piano. You don't necessarily need tax to make that sound there can be a fluctuation in the sound intensity between the piano string so if one's playing at 440 hertz <laughs> and another string is tuned to 442 hertz the resulting tone is going to have a beat frequency of two hertz right there so this dissonance creates the honky tonk sound without needing to put in the tax to make that it's just a coincidence that it happens to be tax and they're making the sound oh so you're saying i've definitely heard of tack piano and i know people who have actually done that as as uh they've done in the brick like that's a sound that you want to achieve but you basically kind of destroy uh i guess it's the hammers like you destroy the components of the piano to do it um it's a cheap effect but so you're saying it's also achievable just from that sound is similar to maybe an untuned piano if it's like in, in, a, in a certain way. Right. Like naturally, if your piano is untuned, <laughs> it's just going to result into that. Cool. That's awesome. Like a weird like uh, cancellate, cancellation of frequencies or just like weird out of tune honky tonk style. Yeah. I mean, some people might might say that's desirable, but 
I guess if you're a piano tuner and you're trying to restore this thing, you're going to need like, he also like sins hauling out on a errand. Um, I guess it's conveniently that Maggie can't go pick up these hammers like 200 miles away because she's probably at this point at Mount Illivet with, uh, with Mike. So Holling's got to like leave the brick, drive 200 miles, I guess 400 miles round trip to pick up these hammers. And then when he gets back to the brick, Arlen's like, uh, well, hold off. Like, I'm not even ready for those right now. So it's like Holling had to go on this crazy goose chase. Um, and I think that is the scene where it kind of boils over. Arlen's like, all right, you want to punch me? You want to lay me out? Like, come on, punch me or whatever. So we're brought to the next scene where Marilyn is playing the piano and she's being coached by Arlen right there. Uh, he's kind of guiding her on how to play the tune. And that's what Marilyn tells him, saying like, hey, while I was playing the piano, there's something off about it. This one key is flat. And Arlen explains to her, saying that, you know, people that build Persian rugs, it takes them years, hundreds of hours to make these rugs. And at the end of it, they always make like one little mistake on the rug, like one flawed knot so that the rug won't be perfect. Yeah, he says like, do you know why they do that? Do you know why they make that one flawed knot? And Marilyn said, Marilyn just, I guess, figures it out. She's like, yeah, I guess because uh, otherwise it would be perfect. And he says, that's right. Uh, this is interesting. You know, I always, I definitely remember this. It's like uh, out of Northern Exposure episodes, I remember this scene. Because I thought that was kind of a novel, clever, unique idea in a way. But it turns out that I think it's actually mathematically impossible to tune a piano perfectly. Do you know about this? Wait, what? So like there are intervals you can tune in. Uh, like, you know, you might tune the first note to the fourth or the fifth, like tune one note in relation to another. And I think the apparently like the best equal, the most equal way to tune it is like every 12 notes you do. I, 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 you'd have to just search uh, YouTube for like impossible to tune a piano. There's a good like minute physics video on this. Um, but there are, there's mathematics that say, you know, it could be, it's impossible just because of the number of notes on a piano in an octave or on a piano and the, the intervals, you know, there's something to be like always a little bit out of tune. Obviously it's probably imperceptible, to the human ear, though if you took a tuner to it, you could see it. Like you could see that some of these notes are going to be a, like slightly sharp or flat. Though I guess in concert altogether, you know, these things would sound relatively in tune to each other. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know about that. But in Northern Exposure's context, I think he did it for uh, an elegant reason. Uh, and I, th I think it plays into this theme of the episode where this piano tuner is coming into town to try to bring something back to tip-top shape. He's trying to bring it back to its original state. But can you really do that? You can't. Once something's broken, it is impossible to put it back to its original state. And you can definitely see this in like interpersonal relationships and growth whenever you go through in your body and mentally and physically. So him leaving behind a flaw is actually kind of genius because he's acknowledging that nothing can be brought back to what things were before. Yeah. So he is just coming. He's, he's going ahead of the game. <laughs> he's just saying like, instead of you yeah. finding out later, I'm going to do it on purpose. I'm going to purposely leave a flaw. Yeah. And I really like that. And he gets to choose the exact note. What is it like the uh, the D above middle C is flat. So yeah, he's making his decision. Like this is his project. He's going to tune this piano and then he's going to decide like where he wants to stick that, that flaw. 
Um, yeah, I've always thought right. that was an interesting. Sorry, yeah, yeah, I thought that was a, always a great bit of um, Northern Exposure storyline here. We're gonna see it be reflected later on in the last plot line with Ed and his father, but I'll, I'll wait till we talk about then. Okay, so uh, just to wrap up Arlen and Hauling, we talked about this wonderful moment where everyone's like really quiet in the brick. Like people are still moving around, doing their thing. Most people are turned towards the piano, which is being played by Arlen. And Hauling, you know, grabs a bottle of Jim Beam off the bar, you know, exits, like walks around the bar and goes, sits down on a table. And um, as Arlen finishes, here, here's what Hauling says. You know, listening to you play the piano reminds me of something I remember many years ago. I was living up on the north shore of Lake Crosswind. That's where I heard it. Music spilling out of a piano, coming from somewhere across the water. Three times I made my way around to the other side of the lake, but I could never locate where that sweet sound was coming from. It was as if the music were flowing out of the lake itself. Gee, what an enchanting story. Arlen, you are a thoroughgoing SOB. Yes, I am. I'm pouring whiskey. You care to join me? And I love that Holling calls him an SOB, but also in the same sentence says, I'm drinking. You want to come? You want to come sit with me? You know, they're not going to, they may be of different temperament, but at this point, Holling respects Arlen. And I'd like to think uh, Arlen obviously is going to share a drink with, with Holling here. Right. And that transitions into the next part where I find really interesting, where Arlen is saying that it's in his nature to be this gigantic asshole right there, even though he's blind. And you would think that like somebody that's blind would be much more humble or just a lot more meek. He didn't care. He feels like, you know what? I'm just going to be the way I am, whether or not I have a debilitating condition. Yeah. And he explains how, like we're already talking about, there's a certain like cultural, I don't know if prejudice is the right word, but just like we have our own vision of what a blind person is like, you know, and that's like, it's someone who has like had hardship and someone who we should treat nicely, you know? And I love that Arlen says, you know, I used to drink a lot. Uh, when he's, when he sits down and has a drink with Holling, he says, I used to drink way too much. And I had the perfect cover because like, I'm a blind man. I'm just running into walls all the time. No one suspects that. But ultimately Arlen and Holling kind of get down to this topic of like, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's must be hard to make friends if you've got like such a gruff outward demeanor. And, and Arlen just says, you know, like a man has to be true to his nature. Like that's who I am. People want a nice blind man. That's what they expect. And to him, I guess, like he wants to have that control and defining his identity. Maybe he doesn't want to be just this stereotypical, uh, always sympathized with people always like treating you too preciously, you know, if, um, because you have this disability, go ahead. Yeah. It's almost like it's really odd, but you can almost say that he didn't want to live up to the expectations of being a blind man. And ordinarily you would use expectations in an upward manner where you would say like, I failed at being the perfect individual. So I didn't meet expectations yet. He's coming from the opposite spectrum where it's it, no one would fault you if you weren't living up to your expectations. But in a way, that itself is expectations. <laughs> like, he is not fulfilling what other people are projecting their ideals onto. Yeah, that's like his power. Like, he gets to decide in this way. You know, he it's just, it's not him. And uh, he doesn't want to be that. So 
That's his, uh, that's his control. That's his empowerment. So I mentioned Arlen says a man has to be true to his nature. And actually, One Who Waits in this episode says something very similar. So let's go ahead and like steer towards back to Ed. So when we last left off with Ed, he was at the brick with One Who Waits uh, smelling hamburgers. Right. After they finish their hamburgers, they head off to the construction site where Ed's father is working. And Ed is really hesitant in speaking with his father. He says, like, uh... I got some other jobs I got to do with Ruthann. Like, I have (laughs) other things. Like, I'll come back later (laughs) or something. Right. But one who waits kind of guilts Ed, saying, like, (laughs) I spent, like, two years in the afterlife, which I don't know if that's entirely true. I I don't know how you measure time in the afterlife (laughs) since it's infinite. Maybe it's, like, longer. (laughs) Maybe it takes longer. No, it's probably shorter, if anything. Well, maybe it's shorter. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think time is linear once you're in (laughs) infinity. But... In a way, he uses that to guilt trip Ed so that he can go get the courage to go speak to his father. Yeah, so Ed finally approaches this man that's supposed to be his father. Uh, I think it's funny when they approach, when they first get to the um, construction site, one who waits is like, look, that's your father. That's right there. Look at his eyes. And Ed responds, well, my eyes are blue. <laughs> and one who waits says, oh, whatever. That's, that's totally him. Like, it's kind of funny just because... <laughs> If you remember one who waits from his introduction in the second season, he's pretty inept. Like he doesn't really lead to any lasting developments, like any any discoveries or anything. But this episode, he's doing pretty good. He he, like you said, he kind of uh, uses that guilt. But I mean, he's got to do what he's got to do to get Ed to approach this man. But unfortunately, when Ed approaches uh, the 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 father, he mistakes Ed for a skip sheeter, like a, just another worker. So someone who's like going to be working on this construction site is like a church. It looks like, right. I'm actually not entirely too sure what it is. I yeah. think church is a good guess based <laughs> on the structure of it, but it, yeah, I don't think they ever explicitly say what it is. Yeah. Well, regardless now Ed is like working for this construction crew, but uh, you can see like from the distance, one who waits gives like his nod of approval. So you know, we're we're starting our journey here. So after Ed starts working for a bit, they stop for lunch. And this is the scene where Ed introduces himself finally. He drops his last name to see if it rings any bells with him. And his father has no real reaction to it, but he does have a reaction to the way that Ed eats his sandwich. Yeah, so Ed is like, they're at lunch and Ed gets like a mustard smudge on the side of his mouth. And Ed's father, who who introduced himself, Pete Jarvis. Pete is like, oh, that's that's hilarious. My son does that all the time, and he you know he gets the mustard on his mouth. Or Ed is uh, eating it in a specific way where he like bites around the outside of the sandwich. I think he says like, I like to work my way in. Uh, same thing that Pete's son does. As it turns out, Pete has two sons uh, and a daughter. Right, and he doesn't get to see them often because he travels a lot. And I, I I gotta say, this is such a painful scene for ed in my imagination because you are already given up for some unforeseeable reason but it turns out that this person it's not like they didn't want children it's just that they didn't want you at that time yeah but then once time went on that you went and had more children and just forgot about them and like even if you look at it kind of optimistically like pete love seems to think fondly of his children at least in how he's describing them to ed right now so it's you know, that's like a father's love that Ed is not receiving or did not receive. Well, 
Ed leaves the construction site that night and hops into the truck with one who waits, who is just like sitting there waiting for him in the car. And um, let me share a soundbite of kind of what transpires here. So, Ed, how did it go? Really good. We got all the skip sheeting done, laid all the paper, started on the shingles. You accomplished a lot. I'll say. Well, what happened when you told your father who you are? Well, I didn't tell him. You didn't tell him? I was going to. And then my mouth got really dry. And it felt like my tongue was swelling up. Every time I tried to get the words out, it was like these great big hands just encircling my throat and choking me. How very peculiar. Not really. Well, because you see, when you left the last time and we couldn't find my father, well, at first I was upset. And then, of course, I saw him, or I thought I did. But it was okay. You know, even if all we did was change a tire, it felt better. Because I didn't have to think about him anymore. Even if I thought I'd never see him again. I think that's a great scene. And I think not only is Darren Burroughs, like, you know, Ed Chigliak doing some really good, like, holding back tears, you know, acting. But um, I just think it's wonderful that Ed can verbalize his feelings so well because... You know, if, if it was just me or something, I would be in the car with one who waits and just make up excuses like, you know, oh, I couldn't do it. My, my mouth dried up, which Ed does. But he goes on to explain. He realizes, like, I think the reason I didn't want to do it is because, you know, I liked it before when I didn't have to think about what this all meant to me. You know, like I met my dad. That was fine. Everything was good. We like kind of hit it off for just like 30 seconds. And we went our own ways. I didn't have to worry about the implications on my life about all of this. Right. It was like, I like the way that we reassembled the pieces right there. I don't want to have to break it down and reassemble it again. Like, what if I don't like the results of that? And I think that's a, such a real organic reason for Ed. I, I give props to that. I think that you can definitely tell that that is something that realistically another human being would feel. And honestly, I'm surprised that he even still had the courage to go talk to him in the next scene. Because yeah. I think that like most individuals will just give up right then and there. Yeah, it's it's terrifying. And, you know, just to give it a little more stakes or ground it in uh, familiar territory, Ed compares it to, you know, Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. Uh, he said, Luke had a father too. Uh, his father turned out to be alive. And uh, they ended up, you know, Darth Vader chopped off Luke's hand and they like fought and they tussled and there was a lot of turmoil. And he, I think he says, you know, that, that kind of, that kind of thing can make a person nervous. So obviously <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I think it's so funny that he uses Star Wars as his description, but the way he describes it is in no way Star Wars <laughs> in that like, he doesn't say that it's a space opera. He doesn't say that he used a lightsaber. Yeah, like this true. could have been said in real world. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> like if you ever one who waits is even like, uh, oh, Joe Skywalker. He's like, no, uh, Luke Skywalker from Star Wars. So yeah, one who waits is probably just sitting there chilling, like thinking that this is a real person. Yeah, like he's gonna be so surprised if he actually saw Star Wars. He'd be like, what? Whoa! <laughs> like this. It's like I've I've heard of this before. What it what what is this? Sorry, that's great. Um, you were getting to the next scene, which is, uh, I think, I believe Ed invites Pete to dinner, right? Yeah. One who ways convinces Ed to break bread with his father because he feels like that's the only way in which meaningful communication can happen. 
Yeah, he said, good food ends with good talk. It's interesting because so far, One Who Waits has been like on the sidelines. We haven't seen him. But at the end of this scene, after Pete accepts the dinner invitation, Ed runs off and goes to like, you know, celebrate. He's like, oh, One Who Waits. He said yes. He said yes. But you can see just from like Pete's point of view that Pete sees Ed run off and talking to no one. So at first I was thinking, you know, One Who Waits isn't walking around the construction site with Ed because the other natives would see him because they're natives too and they can see ghosts. But it turns out at least Pete, you know, at least Ed's dad, Pete, can't see One Who Waits. He just sees uh, an invisible friend, I guess. Oh, yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that. It's, I guess, at the end of the day, it's just sort of like a humorous beat, if nothing else. Right. We, we should Maybe we shouldn't <laughs> analyze that too much. So next we have the dinner scene with Ed and Pete, and it actually begins, like the scene begins after the meal is finished. Right. He likes the way that Ed cooks. And you can kind of see some humorous action happening here where Ed can't admit what's on his mind. He's having trouble communicating his feelings, and he comes very close to saying that he's his son, but no, it kind of just gets dodged off. And his dad even sees like a picture of his mom, which is, I guess, kind of makes sense because if he was like previously attracted to her, he would still see the photo and be attracted to her in a way. Well, I think it was like, he's like, whoa, is this your mom? And Ed says, no, it's like uh, my aunt. It was like, oh, wait, yeah, 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 you're right. Uh, members of the tribe, right? I think, because there's another one. He's like, uh, actually, I can't remember. He sees like a number of pictures. Um, and, you know, obviously gets Ed pretty nervous because now Pete is actively engaging in conversation about family. You know, this is the perfect moment for Ed to say something I want to say Ed like kind of leans on the crutch of like, you know, I got a lot of tapes. I've got this movie, that movie. Do you want to like maybe watch something after dinner? But finally, before he can like finish his thoughts, he he blurts out, uh, I'm an orphan. Is that how the scene ends? Yeah, that's how the scene ends right there. And they don't really expound on that. Ed goes and checks up on the water and it fades to black. But it leads us to the interpretation that Ed is trying in the most indirect way to say that there's a relationship or like some sort of connection between these two people. Yeah. Ed is like laying out all of the pieces except for, you know, just coming straight at it and saying, look, I, you're my father, or I think you're my father. Um, well, we're not done with Ed. So the next scene is back at the construction site. And one who waits, I don't even think one who waits like asks anything. He's just like, well, Ed, I guess I'm leaving now. Well, let's see. I've got the sound bite. Let's see what happens. Ed, I've come to say goodbye. Oh, you're going. Well, there's really nothing left for me to do here now. I'm sorry I couldn't tell Pete he was my father. A man's got to do what a man's got to do, even if you can't explain why. I just never seem to be able to find the right time. Well... There are those who believe that time is a wheel turning forever, which would mean that your moment will surely come. Then, there are those who believe that time is a river, which if that's true, it's possible your moment has already flowed by. Which one do you think it is? I think that time is just time. Goodbye, Ed. Listening to that again, it's a bit sad and defeated, obviously, from one who waits. You know, he was unable to uh, get Ed to, you know, help Ed to make things right with his father. But apart from that, you know, we'll 
spoiler alert, it's not the last time we see one who waits. This was kind of like a dark night of the soul. He'll come back in a great way. But uh, I, I really love this soundbite for its uh, expression of, you know, the different ideas of uh, how to interpret time. I've, I've been thinking about time a lot. And I think ultimately what one who waits says in this scene is almost like not to worry about time so much. In a way, I think what he's saying is that, you know, all of time maybe has already happened. Time is just time. We can't really affect it. Like uh, you may imagine the wheel spinning or the river flowing in one direction. Maybe it's just a thing that happens to us. Yeah, I really like that. So you're saying that, you know, the moment is ephemeral and transient and you can't get it back. But I I also think it's really beautiful because I'm going to spoil it a little bit. With the relationship between Ed and his father, Ed can't go back in time to relive the past with his dad. That's impossible. Yeah. But he can have future moments with his father. So it's kind of like it's both. It's both the wheel and the river. So the moment to connect is gone, but the moment for him to be with his father is still here and the river is still coming down for him to ride the wave. Oh, yeah. Like he missed his childhood. That river has flowed. But in a way, like the river is the wheel. It flows back around again. And now Ed is older, but maybe they can reach some sort of uh, understanding. Ed and Pete, that is. Oh, wow. I totally forgot. This is such a long Ed episode. I love I love that we're getting like such an Ed-centric storyline because I forgot the next scene is with Ruth Ann. Do you remember this? Yeah. Ruth Ann is trying to explain to him <laughs> why someone would not want a child. And she uses a very explicit real life <laughs> example. Well, first, well, first she says, <laughs> right you know, like Pharaoh's soldiers would have killed the little baby Moses. Like they had to put the baby Moses in a basket by the river. It would have been killed. But no, then Ed kind of makes it a little more literal. And, and, and how does she respond? She uses an anecdote from her own life. I think it was like one of her friends who broke up with their partner and felt really jilted. So picked up a new partner and went to this uh, fancy schmancy dance off. They won the dance off. It's kind of a, a way to like make his ex, uh, you know, their, their ex jealous so, you know, look at us. We're winning this dance contest. They celebrated by hopping in the back of a car and uh, doing a little hanky-panky. And out comes a baby, which no one was ready for. And Ruthann says, look, you know, it, it wasn't that my, you know, this person in this anecdote was a bad boy. It's just that he was a boy. He was too young uh, to see these consequences. And uh, that's quite a long anecdote, but... I uh, figured I'd lay it out there because Ed will bring this back up later uh, and so, somehow apply it to to Pete in a way. Yeah, well, that, that that's being generous. He uses the exact same. <laughs> and, well, <laughs> the exact you know, same one. This is definitely, I mean, maybe it's the very same story that, you know, Pete had with Ed's mother. It's probably not exactly the same, but I guess it's something that connects, you know, even though this is, Literally not the same thing that happened. I think Pete can understand. And uh, Pete is, uh, we're kind of jumping ahead, but in that scene when Ed has to talk with Pete, like he's transported in a way to all these memories and to his youth and just like how, I don't know, he, he, was, not, he was not like a man. He wasn't ready for life, I guess. 
Right. Like that story he tells is universal in that like two people young, they had a good time. Then, you know, things went south and they just weren't prepared. So it doesn't matter that the story wasn't exactly correct. He got the gist of it. He kind of got what Ed was trying to say right there. Yeah. It translates over. And well, I forgot to mention that the way this all comes out is Ed is actually trying to, it's like the last day of the job. Pete is paying Ed back in like the contractor's office or whatever that is. And Ed is like, well, you know, uh, it's nice knowing you. See you later. He's like, he's about to leave. And uh, the door is stuck. And actually, I thought it was like a weird, um, awkward, uh, you know, something happening within Ed. But it does turn out that one who waits is on the other side of the door holding it shut. And like Ed is like, oh, I literally can't. Like he's literally stuck and has to face Pete. So he has to blurt it out. He just says, I'm your son. And, you know, gives him that whole Ruth Ann spiel. And this is quite a touching scene. We get some like teary eyed performance from Darren Burroughs. And uh, in a way, like they're finally acknowledging pete is finally acknowledging ed you know he he says you know i used to think maybe i would see him on a playground maybe i'd see you on a playground and it could be you and really they kind of just i think in this scene it's just them kind of like checking in with each other right like ed says i really am i'm doing i'm doing well right ed is saying that you know i got a job at rutan's and i got a job at maurice's and i got my films and so what ed is just trying to say is that you know he still had a life to live even without a father figure. Yeah. And it's, it is incredibly sad. It seems like there's such a loss here and it's almost hard to believe, but I think, I think what's wonderful about Ed's, you know, Darren Burroughs's performance here is that you do believe that he's like really, really hurt, uh, that he's got a kind of a scarred past because of this, but in the very same scene, almost in the same sentence, it resolves with, uh, this affirmation that, you know, I sure am. I'm fine. Like he's, he's doing well. And yeah, gosh, really beautiful. I knew I would love some Ed and I didn't think it would be so powerful. So it's just so lovely. Right. And to top it all off, we see Ed helping out one who waits by kind of, uh, bandaging his arm because he injured him <laughs> trying to push the door open yeah. and he's making some popcorn and they're going to watch a, is it wild strawberry? Is that That's the right. name of the film? Yeah. Wild strawberry is a classic Bergman film. We know that Ed is a big Bergman fan. Uh, I think it's funny when he's bandaging one who waits, he says, you know, I would send you to Dr. Fleischman, but he doesn't believe you exist. <laughs> but yeah, that's, they, they just kind of hang out and, uh, I'm glad it ended this way. And not with the, you know, just the parting words about time. It was a very effective scene, but gosh, it was so sad listening to that soundbite again. You know, it's like, I guess I'll see you later, Ed. Goodbye forever in a way. Yeah. So actually, Charles, there's one more storyline that we've forgotten that we haven't touched. It's the, uh, the like two scene Chris plot line that happens. Not really plot line, but Chris in the morning, he appears in the very beginning and then Actually, when he comes back in the end, it was kind of a shock. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, Chris is in this episode. Right. Chris is laying down the thematic themes of being a duet or being a pair, being in a relationship, whichever way you want to cut it. And he starts off the episode by talking about gravity, how one can attract the other and it's insurmountable to escape it. And that's how they're forming these new galaxies and we're forming new stars. 
Yeah, it's a neat little analogy right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He uses, uh, now I actually don't know if this is real or not, but twin binaries, those are real. Uh, he names a star HD 1545. Uh, so apparently it was like wobbling around all weird. And according to this like breaking news, like today, turns out that it's actually two stars, twin binaries that are spiraling together. And later he gives us, uh, oh, actually it's a deleted scene. I'll play it at the end of the uh, podcast, but it's a deleted scene where he gives us an update on this uh, twin binary system. Uh, it's an interesting scene because he talks about the idea that maybe there is no own self, like you, there's no self, but we exist in relationship to other people. So if you want to hear that, just uh, stick around till the end of the podcast. But uh, no, so... On broadcast, we only have the first scene that we just talked about with Chris and the second scene towards the end where he continues naming uh, duets. Well, he says, like, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping? Uh, you don't have two hands. You don't have any clapping. According to Chris, that's that's his view of it. We all need somebody, a yin and a yang. And he starts just naming partnerships. And it's funny because they just fade, fade him out. Like, he just keeps going and going naming uh, famous partnerships. That's a shame that that deleted scene isn't included because that really helps build up the next one where he's talking about that old Zen conundrum with the one hand clapping right there. Yeah, yeah. Because he's trying to he's trying to reinforce the idea that the facets of you can really only be reflected when there's other individuals right there. So like your world ends with you and you need other individuals to be able to grow and to be able to show who you are because ordinarily you wouldn't be able to do that. If you were the last person in the world, you wouldn't be able to represent who you truly were because there's no one else to play off of. There's no foil. Yeah. And you know, so much of human, so much of being human is uh, sort of like a relationship, a society or uh, just how humans work together, you know? Yeah. You're totally right. It's kind of that deleted scenes like a perfect little bridge in there in the middle and also, it's just kind of, like I said, it's kind of shocking to see Chris again at the end. And you're like, whoa, where was he the whole episode? He just like showed up at the beginning and the end. But yeah, so that does it for duets. Now, Charles, we have the portion of our podcast where we toss to a guest, usually someone who has never seen the show before. And, uh, you know, I thought it would be fitting for today's episode. We have a duet. We have Chelsea and Tanae. Uh, I know Chelsea and Tanae from college. They're both very talented actors, but they also both co-host a podcast called Where the Hell Am I? Uh, it's sort of like a true crime meets like ghosts and supernatural. But also, I think what's awesome about this podcast is it's like a travel podcast at the same time. Like uh, you can check out their first episode where they're in Manchac, Louisiana, just like going down like some crazy bayous at night and going to just like spooky old haunted lands. And the whole dynamic is that Chelsea is sort of like researching on uh, a certain topic and Tanae is almost like blindfolded and brought <laughs> against her will to uh, to explore these these places. That's such a great concept. I love it. <laughs> that reminds me of, uh, there was like, uh, I think there was like a live podcast where I think people were like, two people were like set up yeah, on, like a on a table and they were something. recording a podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they were recording it live and they were like, it was, it was about nothing, but it was also kind of brilliant in its way. There was like a, yeah, I, I think I know, I don't remember. I'm sure that is a ongoing podcast. Cause I do remember 
the one that caught me, it was like those two guys sitting, doing a podcast, and then this one guy um, filming them, but they were like so far apart. And the idea is that you can't have like a crew of like three people. Like if you have more than two people, then you have like a film crew and you need a um, permit. But the podcast guys would be like, no, I don't know who that guy is. He's just, we're out in public. So I guess it's legal for him to film us. We have no, uh, no obligation to, and then they go approach the cameraman and he's like, yeah, I don't know who this podcast is. I just think it's interesting. They're out in the public. So I'm filming it. So that was, I guess, a stunt that they pulled. Um, okay. We've gone off a little topic. Um, let's hear from Chelsea and Tanae to see what they thought about this episode. We are now recording. Wow. Okay. So first of all, What's your name? Oh, do we have to? Inter- Sorry, Lee. Um, if we have to introduce ourselves, yeah, uh, you go first. My name's Chelsea Brian. Uh, I am the Tene Intriago, as always, and we are from the Where the Hell Am I podcast. Um, so how we're going to do this is we are going to record. We were going to watch the episode in its entirety. Mm-hmm. And then record, but after that cold open, we, we need- just could not resist talking about it. <laughs> we had to pause it. Um, what are yeah. your first thoughts? I, I'm a little horny for the ghost. <laughs> um, Ed is his name. Is I think it? they said his name yeah, seventeen Ed. times. Um, wants to sleep with that old lady, dude. So bad. Um, oh yeah. First impression was like, he was like, "Let me get down on that clam." <laughs> Yeah, And I do want to say that I didn't think that I had seen Northern Exposure before, but that old lady is very familiar. Does she look familiar to you? Yeah. I feel like the um, uh, one who waits looks familiar to me, Mm. but maybe it's because I fantasize about what that would look like in my dreams. (laughs) And I I do want to point out that he, the comment that he made to Ed, like, you know how it is being dead. Yeah. 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 That was, uh... Yeah, so he's a ghost, which is cool, but also I guess he's someone who visits him often. Uh, he mu- yeah, he must visit him often. What is Ed's IQ? It's real low. Yeah. His mouth, he literally was breathing out of his mouth. Yeah, the, the time. whole time he was... <laughs> mouth agape. Mouth agape. So, uh... What, you know what he was ready for? I'm not gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you guys ask us to do this? You have no idea what you have done. <laughs> Okay, um, uh, we're going to continue, so let's pause and continue the show. Put that badminton set on. Uh, Where's that, man? Put the badminton set on with the... With, with the, the sporting goods. With the sporting goods. Yeah. Now, while, oh, I'm about to get some uh, tips in my hair. What you think? <laughs> Random thought while watching the intro. The moose is already more interesting than Ed. Yes, agreed. Yeah. Um, already has a better presence. Yes, would love to cuddle. 10 out of 10. We have many thoughts so far. Well, should we just ask questions? Because apparently that's the only thing that any woman in this show does. Yes, just ask. a question. They all just ask questions. Well, gosh, gee, Willikers. Oh, God, awful. Is God. he? Is that man with the glasses and fly to Illamites? Is he blind? <laughs> oh, you're blind. I am blind. Also. <laughs> I have to say, when Ed was talking about the gherkins, to hold the gherkins, I felt like it was code for, like, please hold my gherkin, i.e. his downstairs mix-up. Um. <laughs> but also, the waitress in any, like, 90s show is, is always named Shelly. Yes, yes. Shelly is the quintessential 
name for waitresses. And I'm glad that the doctor... Um, Fleshlight. Dr. Fleshlight. Dr. Fleshlight pointed out that Ed was talking to absolutely uh, no one that anyone else could see. Yeah. Because uh, for a minute, I was that's all I could picture is that, is everyone just like, is this Ed? Is, he's just that guy <laughs> right. in the village? Right. And we continue, and we continue on. on. We have so many um, more thoughts uh, on the conclusion of this episode. Um, Chelsea? I don't know if... It was accidental, but the last thing we heard in this episode was the way you eat your sandwich. Um, so, yeah, uh, Ed should not have gotten on that route. Yeah, what? It's a safety ri- I mean, he's ri- he got—oh, my God, Ed. <laughs> Just, on Ed. Ed, Ed needs um, help. And, you know, Dr. Fleshlight is— An asshole. Uh, yeah, he's—it's he's, um, true that Ed— I think possibly needs help, but not in the way that he's recommending. Um, the way that he man that Doctor Fleshlight Fleischman, whatever the hell, mansplained his way to that girl. Um, what's her name? Bullcut lady. I don't know. She looks like a white Halle Berry. <laughs> <laughs> she just asked a lot of qu- miss. Uh, yeah, ask a lot of questions. I yes. don't know. Yeah. Um. I just we just don't like him very much. Mm-mm. But. Uh, we thought it was very cute when Ed walked up to the construction site and said that he had a defrost Ruth Miss Ruth's freezer. Because it pointed back to exactly what we knew. Are your conclusion, Chelsea Bryan? That Ed wants to flat. Mm, mm-hmm. He wants to flesh out he wants everything. To, he wants to. And I think that'll be the time he probably loses virginity. Like, I don't think they're quite... I'm picturing Ed and Miss Ruth Ann right now. I really am, and I don't want to. Um, overall. Uh, overall. Oh, and the guy. The guy in the beginning. On the podcast. I mean, on the radio. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> on the radio. What's his oh, name? God, what is his name? God, he I want to f- him. <laughs> He's in the United States of Terra. He's in My and Big Fat Greek Wedding. Also, isn't he in the Chili's commercial? He's, he's, in he's a zaddy. He's. I yeah, want him I, to punch me in the face. Oh, my God. We're talking about Ed. <laughs> but we got some issues, obviously. Um, God, yeah, I want to watch more just to see, because he's such a great actor. Right, yes. But what else do we, what do we know the bold guy with the glasses Yes, from? the the research guy. He's very familiar. God. Um, And I, yeah, I feel like we only got the link. I think the link that we got only gave us, like, half of the episode because it ended when Ed was meeting his whoever, his, you know, his, um, uh, his P- Patrick Spacey ghost uh, told him yeah. his father. I think it was about to end. It might have just cut off the, like, last yeah. few seconds. But, but right when Ed was eating the crusts off of his sandwich, yeah. like a damn psychopath. Yeah. How dare he? I mean, I have to give space for Ed because I do some weird with my sandwiches. Like, I eat the crust on the sandwich, but I don't eat the crust first. Like, no, it's, it's like last. A- it's last, because that's where it belongs, is last. Ed, but I'm pretty sure he was eating a PB&J when he was eating the crust first, and then when it zoomed in, it was the mustard, whatever, probably bologna. It seems like a bologna guy, you know? Nothing wrong with a little, a little bologna. Yeah. I love um, a fried bologna sandwich. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say... That I don't miss—I miss the 90s. Same. I miss it. I love it. I, the nostalgia, like, it makes me want to cry. I don't want to be a 32-year-old woman living in a pan. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't want to be— She's spiraling. Uh, sorry. She's spiraling. Sorry, sorry. Um, I'd love to just to watch, like, all that. It's really wholesome. But do I miss weak female characters that only ask questions and are there as filler? No. Nope. Don't miss that. Nope. Not one bit. 
Except I mean, when he was like, what did she say when she left and we praised her? Drop dead. Drop dead. Yeah. I like that. Love it. It was very powerful. Oh, my God. Wait. We were supposed to only talk for five minutes, weren't we? No, he said it could it could be longer, but they just say that. But anyway, <laughs> thanks, Lee, for having us on. Sorry, it just hit me. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I, You know, Lee, we're sitting here complaining to you how we feel like women aren't done justice in the 90s, and we feel as women you're not doing justice to us by cutting us off at three minutes. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna take our space. We're gonna fill the room. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, he, he'll cut it. Right. You'll cut it, Lee. Right. Are you gonna cut us out? <laughs> are you gonna cut so much? Are you, are you gonna be able to use? I any think of I've this? only met Lee one time. Anyway, um, Northern Exposure. I give it a uh, like a seven out of ten. It's very wholesome. I give it maybe gosh. A, maybe a six. I <laughs> give I give it a six out of ten. Yeah. Based on this episode. I feel like I've seen more as a kid. Yeah. Oh, also the blind guy was a misogynistic prick, and I'm not afraid to say that, even though he's blind. No. Even though— Blonde and stacked? Oh, yeah. Well, f- you right in the hole, okay? Even though that girl's like, Shelly, I'll be right back. Oh, the quintessential talking to a blind guy like he's deaf? Uh, yeah, give me a break, God. okay? God. So I'll give the moose 10 out of 10. Oh, moose. Yeah. Hot guy from all those shows that we love, but we cannot remember his yeah, name. Yeah, what's his name? Ten Z- of, Zaddy. Zaddy, Zaddy Warbucks. 10 out of yeah. 10. Mm-hmm. Shelly, you're going to get a 2 out of 10. Yeah. She, you know what? Shelly's probably a nice, like, stay-at-home mother. Actually, she's probably much older than stay-at-home age now. She's, or she's a heroin addict because she was probably... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give the women as a whole 2 out of 10. Yeah, but we're sorry because it's not your fault. But you know what, Miss Ruth? Miss Ruth, holding yeah, it down. I'll give her... I'll give her six out of ten. Dude, plus the sex appeal? Come on. Ed? Ed? I don't believe that Ed is Native American for one instance, but, you know, whatever. What do you, what do you rate Ed? Ed? The protagonist, apparently, of Ed, the show. We're gonna, I'm going to do Ed right at a solid one. <laughs> Just a solid. He made the scale. <laughs> I'll second that. <laughs> I'll second that. So there, that's our thoughts on Northern Exposure. Yeah. If we haven't killed... Your ears. Your ears. Yeah. Then uh, we'd love to do this again. Yeah, have us back on. Maybe we can do it together at one point in time. Oh, oh my people. God. Yeah. Okay. All well, right. So this is... Uh, Thanks, Lee. Chelsea and Tanae of Where the Hell Am I podcast signing off. And uh, good luck. Good, good luck out there. <laughs> Wait, did they really think the episode ended at 15 <laughs> minutes when Ed was eating the sandwich? Yeah, that is a common problem uh, with the way we're sharing sharing these episodes. They kind of cut off uh, at 15 minutes. Hey, this is Lee with a quick punch-in edit. I just wanted to clarify that we do send our guests the full episode to review, but more than once we've run into this glitch where the episode may only play for 15 minutes. But as you'll hear, I think in this case with Chelsea and Tanae, they gave us some really great feedback for just having seen 15 minutes. But I think they gave us so much content. Uh, and again, there's no problem. <laughs> I'm not trying to censor you for to three minutes. Uh, that, you know, I think we ask our guests to go for like, you know, three minutes or less. I don't want to put any pressure on anybody. But I really love it, especially we should do like dual guests more often. Because it's kind of like listening to a podcast within a podcast. I like hearing, I don't know, I just like podcasts, I guess. So it's so much better when you have two people. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I think it's great to have two people play off of each other right there. No, I, I, hang on, I, I just can't. <laughs> like, 
This is the yeah, one TV yeah. show that didn't have credits. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very odd place to. What would probably happen is they just, you know, it's kind of down to the you wire. Just it. <laughs> yeah, it's down to the wire, and they needed to submit it. And uh, yeah, maybe they figured it was a problem with the file. It's like the uh, the equivalent of like taking a test, like multiple choice. And you just don't even answer to like the last ten bubbles because you just ran out of time. All right, okay, okay. No, I loved their commentary. I want to start. I in. did too. I, I liked it too. I I I, I, re- I really enjoyed it. I want to make that clear. I just wanted to razz them a little bit on that. We're having a lot of fun here. Okay. Um. Well, let's start in on it. So I love upfront so much enthusiasm for one who waits that they had to stop like the episode just to start recording right there on the cold open of the like they they're not even like a minute into the show yeah they uh they mentioned that one who waits is fantastic to them and they also (laughs) mentioned something that another guest has also mentioned which is that ed has romantic feelings for ruth ann yeah that is interesting because it's totally i could see it you know like uh there's that episode i think it's a hunting we will go in this third season where ed buys ruth ann a grave plot and they like dance on the grave and it's a very like you know, you think about like Harold and Maude, like that is a dynamic that can be read from their interactions. I don't think it's a romantic thing, but at the same time, as soon as I said that, I also flashed to the memory when of all the like dinners they share, like Ed will invite Ruth Ann to his house and they have dinner together. I don't know. Maybe there's maybe there's something there. I for some reason I just never interpreted it in that way. <laughs> like even when I was, I've, I mean I've been watching the same episodes you have, yeah. and like every single time those scenes came out, I never thought like there was like something <laughs> going chemistry on there. within there. Um, but no, it's cute. <laughs> I liked in the opening. It's cute because Ed is um, he tells Ruth Ann. Well, she asks him like, "What you know? I'm going to get my hair done." The hairdresser says I should do this. Ed says, no, I, I think you look great like the way you are, basically. It's 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 nice. <laughs> Though they are the first guest that I want to say that was uh, hating on that Ed. <laughs> yeah. Most people really love the, like, I've heard Keanu-esque qualities of Ed. And this is a very Ed-centric episode. I'm very grateful for that. But I don't think this is Ed at his best. I mean, what I mean is uh, I think he does some really wonderful acting throughout this episode, especially towards the end. But I think, you know, he's always fun as sort of a sidekick. So it's kind of a different dynamic, though I really enjoy that the show started to focus, you know, in on his storyline and his own personal. He's like went from like just a sideline character to I think for this episode, he's like the primary character. So, you know, maybe it's just that this is not normally how Ed is presented to the audience. Now he's like full on central character, at least for this episode. Mm, okay, I get what you're talking about. Also, um, what was the, I'm guessing the badminton set that was from this scene? The, uh, like, get that, do you remember? What yeah, I think that was Ruth Ann. I think it was in the cold open. Right, yeah, so it's in that first scene. Um, and they were, like, trying to place Ruth Ann like they had seen her before. Uh, the actress is Peg Phillips. And if it's not from Northern Exposure, you probably recognize her from... She doesn't have very many TV or film credits, but she did sort of like one of her longest runs would have been uh, four episodes of Seventh Heaven, which I'm not too familiar with, but she played a character named Mrs. Hinkle. Hmm. Okay. Also, uh, another actor that they like couldn't totally place. Uh, well, I mean, they actually, you know, obviously Big Fat Greek Wedding, 
what else is he in? The uh, Applebee's commercials in Walgreens. Yeah, commercials. yeah, it's an Applebee's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's John Corbett, and I think the the one that you're that you're like uh, that's on the tip of your tongue is Sex in the City. Like I know he has a big role in that series. What is a what? What is a? I'm a little bit afraid to ask this at this point. Well, what is a zaddy? <laughs> I. Guessing it's like a. Do we bleep this? <laughs> I don't think you have to bleep Zaddy. I think it's just like a hot dad. Like you know, if you had like, well, I guess you might have to bleep milf, but like the opposite of that, I guess would be a dill. Well, but I guess Zaddy why is, is it just, with a Z. Um. So it's like I think I think it's just, dude. I don't know. I can't explain it. I think it's like a, <laughs> like just like makes it sexier. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to figure out how called? to put this into words. Go ahead. What What is that called in sound? Whenever you make the Z sound, it's like the like uh, The Z H is like a yeah, yeah. I don't is, know what is it's that called. Like, is Is zebra sexy? <laughs> okay. Uh, no. All right, Charles. Let's Let's focus on uh, some of the things that they touched on. I I have no answers for Zaddy. <laughs> so uh, they point out something very important at least in the first 15 minutes of this episode, but I bet throughout the majority of this episode, the women are just there to ask questions. It seems like the women just ask the questions, which would mean it's like a setup for the men to give the answers or, you know, it's not not the greatest um, female characters for this episode. Right. They're simply used as a device to carry forward the plot. So you have like, it, it plays on like a lot of negative traits. Like you have that, Oh, I'm a I'm a dumb woman, and I need to go ask a man. Uh, what is this? Explain this to me. Why is the sky blue? Oh my God, you're so smart! Like it plays into those tropes right there. And yeah, uh, Northern Exposure, especially for this episode, definitely leaned on that. Though I will say that there are episodes, particularly for Shelley, we just saw one recently where they are kick. So. I, I, it just oscillates. I will say Shelly can be, uh, for me, like she's one of my least favorite characters or my favorite character. Like she has exactly what you said, Charles. Like there's some really powerful Shelly episodes. Some of my favorite moments of this TV series are Shelly. But, you know, she's also sort of played for comedy a lot. And I think that always falls short for me most of the time. Even when it is, even when I can acknowledge that's funny, I'm not a fan of, of the the comedy angle, but um, when they, when they like play up her right. character for a joke, but um, right because it's oftentimes coming at like not even at her character, but almost just like her identity as a young woman, and like that, that's where the joke is. Yeah, uh, which is very harmful. I, I will have to say though, there is a person named Adrian Shelley who was an actor and a screenwriter, and she actually wrote the film Waitress, which got later turned into a musical. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, Charles, you're like a big musical fan, I guess. There's that synergy of Shelly. Um, speaking of Shelly, they were saying that like Shelly is such a 90s name for like a waitress in a movie that was you know released in the 90s. It's always Shelly. Uh, I think that's true. I think I just looked it up. Like when was the name Shelly the most popular? It's this crazy bell curve and it all spikes in 1964. So if you're thinking like a classic diner maybe – like the diner, I don't know if that's the boom time necessarily. Maybe it's more 50s to 70s. But um, yeah, Shelly was like oh, huge wow. in 1960s, most popular, 64. I always think about like maybe in the next like 20 years, 25 years, give or take, there's a real chance 
we might have a president called Adrian because it's such a common name now. <laughs> yeah, I don't just have like, a problem with that. That's, <laughs> I, it's just such an odd one to be like, it's <laughs> President <think> Adrian. <laughs> I think that makes sense, actually, yeah. Okay, so we're let's get to uh, the next thing in my notes is the sandwich, which I think is where it cut off for them. I thought it was really funny. <laughs> I think Tanae said that she eats her crust last, which is hilarious because, you know, people will pick the crust off and just not eat it at all. Or in this case, Ed will eat the crust first and work his way in. But it, to eat the crust last means you you pick it off, but then you do eat it. You just don't eat it with the sandwich. Yeah, like <laughs> I, I guess you just peel off like the the front door of it and then you um, start getting to the good stuff and then you just finish it off in a way. Wait, I guess there is another option too. You could just like legit just like fold the sandwich and like bite it, you know, like fold it. And oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't think about that. Very inventive. I think that's way like kind of, of a viable strategy. Yeah. To eat the crust first because it's saving the best for last. So it's kind of like eating your <laughs> vegetables first, or like, uh, I, I mean, well, that's like the only example I can think of. But like, you know, just after you eat the crust and get its nutrients, you start getting to the soft middle. <laughs> yeah. I also wrote down that, you know, it's hilarious that they pointed out how much of a safety hazard it is to have Ed in the construction site. But I guess for this show, Ed has, he's like a gopher. Like he has all these different jobs. There's like two episodes where he's driving a forklift without a construction hat. And he's, he's just got some crazy, not OSHA safe, uh, not OSHA regulated jobs. Well, he is also paid in cash at the end of the episode. <laughs> Wait. Oh, that's right. Yeah. In the, uh, in like the foreman's uh, trailer. Yeah. Yeah. He's not like. He's not getting like a W-2 form or anything out of this. He <laughs> just give him a cash. I also appreciate the kind of like score ranking they do at the end. I don't think we've had guests. Well, we've definitely had guests who say they like it or they would watch another. But uh, this is a very efficient way, you know, like kind of like scaling it. Uh, what was it? Like six out of 10? I can't remember. Yeah, it was a seven out of 10 and a six out of 10. Though I was thinking to myself just now, like wh what if the score actually went down if they actually had watched the episode? <laughs> what if they're like, it was seven out of 10, like the 15 minute mark, but the more I watched it, four out of 10, three. <laughs> I don't know, actually. I was going to say, no, I think it's obvious that it would go up. I think it, I think it gets better towards the end, but uh, I don't know. Maybe it's that, maybe it would spiral down just from that. That is kind of an interesting place to stop the episode. Well, Chelsea, Tanae, thank you so much for watching 15 minutes of the episode and <laughs> recording your thoughts. And uh, no, we really appreciate it. We had a lot of fun listening to that. And obviously we're still laughing about it. And I want to plug their podcast one more time. It's the Where the Hell Am I podcast. Uh, if you liked what you heard here, it's very similar, uh, but obviously with sort of like occult, supernatural, haunted uh, themes. So, yeah, check that out. Charles will be back next week with the 14th episode of season four. It's called Gross Point 48230. What do you think that means, Charles? What's what's that episode going to be about? Oh, wow. Is that the zip code for Gross Point? I guess so. I, I, I don't want to Google it because uh, that's going to spoil <laughs> yeah. it right there. I'm guessing like, but well, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think that it, that is the zip code. I'm hoping. I don't think they're going to do this for budgetary reasons. But I hope it's actually not in Sicily. I hope like Maggie returns home back to Gross Point. Maybe Joel comes along for some weird reason or like some other cast member comes along. And yeah, we can see Maggie interact with her family. Yeah, they, uh, they're really teasing it there with the title. So 
I mean, knock on wood, they better they better go. But we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, I think zip code. I think it's the accurate zip code. I could be wrong, but you got like you know your Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero. So I'm assuming that's what this is ripping off. Um, well, Charles, thanks for potting, and I'll see you next week. Yeah, all right, see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Chelsea and Tanae for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening. HD 1545 A and B, our star buddies dancing out in the firmament. Interesting metaphor for the human condition. How so? Well, we've spent a millennia, not to mention mucho bucks, doled out to shrink so we can discover who we are. Navel gazing, cocking an ear when the Oracle of Delphi whispered, Know thyself. Or nodding in agreement with Will Shakespeare when he advised, To thine own self be true. Maybe, maybe there is no own self. Maybe we just exist in relationship to other people. I mean, is there a single, solitary Chris Stevens? Or a Chris Stevens who, who bows before Bossman Minifield and one who shucks and jives with his homies back in cell block tango and one who writes a poem just because of the sweet thing who inspired him? Think about it.